Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. We are live from the World Bank Annual Meetings in Bali, Indonesia. I'm Kate Midden here with two of our DevEx journalists, Michael Igo and Sophie Edwards. Michael and Sophie, thank you so much for joining me this week to take us inside the meetings. It's a pleasure. So there are a couple clear emerging themes this week, but the biggest one on everyone's minds today is the launch of the World Bank's Human Capital Index. Sophie, you had a story out this morning really looking at what this index is and the implications that it has for um, the 157 countries included in it. Can you give us a primer of what this index is? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, and, and a couple of journalists were invited to a press conference yesterday with Jim Kim, which is where we got a lot of the information, which was, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, so the index, I mean, it's been a year of lots of indexes and there are a lot of them out there. So I guess one question is, how is this one different? Um, but to give a quick overview, um, it's basically looking at how well countries are doing in supporting their citizens. It's not about specific monetary investments necessarily, but it's, it's about how their outcomes are in education and health, and it takes four indicators, looking at things like child stunting and, and years in education, and comes up with an aggregate score based on that. And this year um, is the first iteration of it, and the World Bank staff are, are pretty open with the fact that they hope it will change and improve in, in future years, particularly you know, bringing in new indicators and revising the methodology. But for the first year, uh, Singapore came top and Chad came bottom and 19 out of the 20 bottom performing countries were from Africa and the top ones were Singapore, followed by South Korea, followed by Japan and then the Nordic countries uh, and the US came 23rd, I believe. Um, UK came 15. Anyway, so no massive surprises in terms of the rankings. So uh, how it's apparently different though is that it's supposed to be a sort of way of naming and shaming uh, countries and because it comes from the World Bank it has some clout behind it apparently uh, moving them towards investing more financial resources in education and health programs away from more traditional ones such as infrastructure and you know, transport and things like that. And it sounded um, from conversations that we've had and that you've recounted with your sources that this has already had a bit of an impact because it's been there's been some buzz about this for about a year. Um, what has that looked like? like? What kind of investment has that facilitated? Uh, I mean, we don't really know, actually. It's something Jim Kim said in the press conference yesterday was that in the last year since he started talking about it, he's seen a 70% increase in government requests for loans from the World Bank for education and health. Um, but we don't, we don't actually have a lot of statistics, and there's been some some skepticism about what that really means. There's a tweet by Justin Sandifer, who's an economist with uh, the Center for Global Development, um, which, which sort of raises that point as well. Whether it's supply-driven or demand-driven, the, the new demand for loans, yeah. yeah. And Michael, you're also looking at the Human Capital Index from a few different angles. What are you finding, what are you hearing about this index, the criticisms of it? Um, particularly well yeah I mean I think it's um, actually what I've been sort of interested to see is the relatively broad support I don't know if you agree Sophie but um, civil society organizations across the board uh, seem to be relatively welcoming of this new index even though it is you know one of, of many at this point I think you know what's interesting about this is that uh, President Kim and the World Bank are sort of using this index as a way to uh, shift responsibility a little bit and to change the the way that we uh, talk about responsibility for development outcomes so 
I don't, what's been striking to me in a lot of the sessions is that uh, where you might have in the past uh, seen uh, reference to poor outcomes in health and education as sort of a clarion call for more development spending, more official development assistance, a real purpose of this index is to put that responsibility on governments themselves. And so Jim Kim has said very directly to civil society organizations that when they see that um, you know, Nigeria, for example, uh, is scoring very low on this index, and they also see that Nigeria is only dedicating 0.76% uh, of its GDP to health spending, that should not necessarily prompt them to say Nigeria needs more official development assistance, it should prompt them to say Nigeria needs to spend more money on health and demand better outcomes. So I think there's an interesting, um, this index is an interesting input into the conversation about who's responsible for delivering on these things. You know, that dovetails nicely with another big topic of conversation that's been happening at these meetings, which is around domestic resource mobilization, particularly in terms of financing the SDGs. Do you see much overlap there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is an interesting... I think for, for a long time, um, even as a reporter with DevX, we've sort of seen our purview as largely the World Bank at these meetings. You know, we focus on the World Bank, the, the World Bank being the, the development side of, of the World Bank IMF. What's interesting to me is that the IMF is really positioning itself as a major player on this question of domestic resource mobilization, and um, really highlighting the amount of um, money that they're dedicating towards capacity development around tax issues. Um, so, you know, there's enormous potential for domestic resource mobilization to help fill the, the financing gap that exists around the sustainable development goals. It's not going to account for everything. Um, I can't remember exactly what the figures are, but there's something around like, you know, um, it might might uh, close the gap by 5% or something like that. I, I think it's that the average is that countries could um, uh, add 5% uh, to the amount that they're, they're spending on, on SDG-related activities through uh, domestic resource mobilization. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a direct correlation, you know, whenever you're talking about countries needing to spend more, you're also talking about countries needing to raise more, and so that's, there's a direct link. Yeah, on this um, earlier point about the, the comments that Jim Kim was making about, um, you know, the answer is not necessarily for aid organizations to spend more in ODA or give more aid money, but shifting the onus to countries. What has been sort of the civil society reaction to that? Um, well, we did an interview earlier today with Kevin Watkins, the CEO of Save the Children. I mean, he's definitely in agreement. Um, he sort of said that, you know, Save the Children international organization a lot of the work that gets picked up in the media is their international advocacy which you know is like lobbying groups like the world bank and, and the department for international development in the uk but in country they really are working on trying to influence governments to do this so i think they would probably say yeah we, we do a lot of that anyway um but i think they would also sort of make a point of it's, it's also got to be around how this money is spent and I think that's one of the criticisms of the index from civil society groups is that it doesn't disaggregate enough uh, in terms of the kinds of um, population groups that the outcomes are coming from because it's aggregate data so it's, there's no waiting for um, educational outcomes between say rich children versus, versus poor children um, and 
the gap, the danger therefore would be that you know countries are incentivized to try and game the index by putting more resources into you know, into already well well resourced schools, for example, to to boost test scores. Uh, so they really really want to see the data drive much further in, into much more detail um, to make sure that this inequality is being taken into account. And the poorest aren't being left behind. Exactly. So another major topic of conversation that we've been doing a lot of reporting on, we've heard a lot about, is greening investments, particularly as it relates to the World Bank's private sector arm, the International Finance Corporation, or the IRC. Um, the head of the IRC submitted an op Excuse me. Excuse me, IFC. IRC, also very important. Also very important. Um, the IFC CEO submitted an op-ed to DevEx that was published earlier this week, really talking about a new kind of controversial policy um, to really try to get banks and emerging markets out of coal. Sophie, this is something that you've been looking at. You know, where are we in that conversation? Yeah, no, so it was um, it was great, and we were we were very thrilled at DevEx to be able to run that on Monday. Um, so yeah, so the IFC has been criticised for a long time for um, having continuing to lend indirectly for coal and other fossil fuels through what are known as financial intermediaries, so banks and facilities and things like that. And in the past, IFC has sort of said, you know, it's a tiny portion of our lending that is going indirectly towards this. Kind of, how can we be held responsible for that? And that was their position for a number of years. Uh, and this so this is a massive change. Um, Philippe Lehuru, the CEO, said, you know, if our mission is to really um, help stop climate change and help get institutions out of coal, which is the World Bank Group's wider policy, is that they don't invest in coal unless in incredibly rare circumstances, uh, then we need to actually seek out these financial intermediaries and work with them to help them green their ploys, help them get out of coal. Just by sort of saying, we won't lend to you anymore is, is really not gonna help solve the problem is what he's saying. So we wanna sort of be more proactive about it. Um, and the response has been actually quite positive from um, from sort of the campaign groups like Oil Change International, for example, and the Sierra Club. Although they, they obviously want the IFC to go further, they want the policy to be expanded to include fossil fuels as well. And they're also concerned about uh, existing IFC investments through intermediaries that have um, supported coal and you know redress for people that have been damaged by that. There was some other big coal-related news this week, not with the IFC but with the World Bank. Um, Michael, you did some reporting on a coal project that is no longer being financed by the World Bank in Kosovo. Now, what? Give us some background on that story, and then is this are both of these things illustrative of a wider trend in coal investment? Yeah, um, I think Sophie and I have both been reporting on this for years, which just sort of points to how long this issue has been on the table at the World Bank and, and among the civil society groups who, who work on it. So um, in 2013, the bank announced this new policy that Sophie alluded to, uh, wherein they would only finance coal projects in rare circumstances. Um, and at the time, there seemed to be one of these rare circumstances in Kosovo. And so the bank was considering support for the Kosovo C, very creatively named Kosovo C, there's A and B and this was C, uh, coal project, which was a 500 megawatt, uh, proposed megawatt, proposed 500 megawatt coal project in, uh, in Kosovo. Um, there were feasibility studies done, there were, um, actual, you know, people were moved out of out of the communities where this was going to take place, so it was quite 
quite far along in sort of the, the preparation stage. Um, and meanwhile, you know, understanding that the bank was going to be supporting this project, uh, civil society groups really pushed back hard and, and um, took issue with the bank's claim that, that they had no other option. So the rare circumstances clause is, you know, we will only support coal uh, if there's no other commercially feasible option. And what does that mean that there's no other option? Good question. I mean, I think it, it the language in the policy is a little bit vague. So my impression is that it's sort of open to interpretation. Um, but in a, a press briefing in 2013, um, President Kim essentially, um, you know, put the, the decision between either supporting this coal project or um, standing by as people in Kosovo, which has cold winters, um, can't afford heating and um, you know suffer the, the attendant health consequences of that. So I think it, there has to be like a humanitarian imperative almost. Yeah. And then what does it say about um, the way that coal investment is viewed more broadly within the World Bank, within multilateral institutions? I mean, on the one hand, is this is this a climate issue or is it in you know cost benefit issue yeah. what does this what what is the trend that we're seeing yeah so so the big news uh yesterday and it was funny news it wasn't really announced so much as answered in a civil society town hall president kim got a question about whether the world bank was going to uh support this project anymore and he said no it's off the table and that was sort of the first time that the president had uh, had publicly stated that um, so anyway, I mean, I think it's, um, it's indicative of a few things. It's indicative of the fact that the economics around energy are just changing. Um, and that, you know, in the, the explanation that he gave yesterday, President Kim said that they're required by their bylaws to pursue the least cost option. Um, and in this case, now coal was no longer the least cost option. Renewables were. So you've got an economic argument. Um, I think it's also a reflection of... of uh, the kind of information that's now contained in something like the IPCC report that came out on Monday, which says that um, by mid-century, the planet needs to be at net zero emissions in order to avoid uh, extremely dangerous climate change, and that we're already locked into uh, significant levels of climate change that put, you know, the banks, uh, basically the bank's entire investment portfolio at risk since they're working in some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. Um, so I think, you know, the idea that you would have a World Bank supporting coal on one hand uh, and then supporting uh, climate vulnerable countries like low-lying islands that consider their uh, entire lifestyles now at risk, um, that's becoming an increasingly untenable position for an organization to hold. For anyone who is not familiar with this IPCC report, um, our data journalist Lisa Cornish did a story really looking at what this report said and kind of what it meant for the development community, so be sure to check that out. It did feel like there's a, a political element to this too, of you can't have a report like that come out. I mean, it felt like a bit of a bombshell or a wake-up call yeah. and then continue to invest in coal. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the World Bank... Um, President Kim has been really vocal and, and out in front on climate issues. It's something he's really sort of um, put at the center of his, his leadership of the institution. And, um, you know, I think in this case, uh, the climate concerns obviously trumped uh, any, no pun intended, any, uh, <laughs> any desire to support that coal plant. And the economics had changed, so the decision became easier. Just very quickly, I, I spoke with um, the World Bank's senior director for climate change, John Room, yesterday. 
um, about sort of how the bank is is taking into consideration the new IPCC report. Um, and he alluded to some uh, announcements that are upcoming, including a new adaptation uh, strategy, which we'll be keeping tabs on. Um, and also just, you know, his point was that climate change is happening, the bank is, is acknowledging that, so they're going to be investing more and already are investing more in the adaptation and resilience side of things. That's something we'll be keeping an eye on. So the other, another big thing that we should acknowledge is that we are here in Nusa Dua in Bali, Indonesia. Can you give a little bit of context to this moment? You know, there's been a lot of conversation here around things like disaster, fi disaster risk financing, and Indonesia, of course, just suffered a tragic earthquake and then tsunami that resulted in upwards of 5,000 people dying, um, numbers still missing. You know, what does it mean that the bank meetings are being held in Indonesia, and what what is the context of this moment? But I think. Um, I'll take some of it. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I, there was obviously probably a question of whether the bank meetings should be held in Indonesia post uh, natural disaster. Uh, whether, you know, holding them here is expensive, it's a big deal, it requires a lot of security and organization uh, from, from the government of Indonesia. Perhaps, perhaps it was a burden. Um, but I think talking to sort of bank, bank people, they were very aware of that issue in that question they raise it as a question and, and I think the understanding was that the government were adamant that they they wanted to go ahead it's you know it's good for, to put sort of Indonesia on the map it's good it's good profile and exposure and it shows resilience and things like that but I think that was definitely a question um, but what we're now hearing is that the the government the Indonesian government is also possibly causing some issues for uh, for demonstrators and civil society groups which I think Michael knows a bit more about particularly with the People's Global Conference. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's sort of, it seems like it's a bit of a mixed bag on the civil society front with some positive signals on one hand and, and some um, concerning signals on the other. So there was this Global People's Conference that uh, a number of civil society organizations had organized as sort of an alternative, um, a bit of a, you know, a, a protest alternative to the World Bank IMF annual meetings. Uh, which is not uncommon. We see similar um, meetings organized when the banks are held in D.C. Uh, and I think there was a, a broad impression that they would be allowed to move forward. Um, but more recently, the Indonesian government has placed some bans on um, public demonstrations here in, uh, I think, Bali-wide, actually, not just in Nusa Dua, but, but across the island. Um, and so civil society groups have complained that that's a, a violation of their basic constitutional rights. The World Bank and IMF were, uh, the, the heads of those two institutions last night were asked about this and said that they had actually uh, requested that the conference be allowed to move forward and that it was being uh, blocked essentially against their their wishes. So that was sort of interesting. That has created an interesting, or as part of an interesting dynamic that's happening at these meetings, which involves, you know, we have, we're at the West End in Nusadua, the conference center, you know, both the official programming for the World Bank meetings is happening, the CSO forum and all of the civil society um, sessions are happening in the same building, are co-located, that's something that hasn't really happened before. Um, we're hearing from the leaders of these institutions that they would really, they really view their relationship with civil society as one as they're at the table together. Um, what have you seen in terms of those different points? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, again, sort of a, a mixed bag. I think the fact that the civil... You hear some sort of anecdotal things that, that people are happy about. So the, I saw some uh, civil society commentary that they were pleased that the civil society forum's ad, uh, agenda was running along the same scroll as sort of the official... Uh, conference agenda, so there's sort of a, an acknowledged amount of parity um, there that I think they welcomed. The fact that it's in the same building um, sort of makes it seem like a bit of the same event. Uh, at the town hall last night, there was sort of a um, bit of an awkward moment where President Kim and uh, and Managing Director Lagarde uh, came in to, to sit with civil society for a town hall, but they were up, up on this elevated stage, you know, um, sort of uh, unintentionally lording over everyone and I think you know they sort of resisted that and, and were not happy with that arrangement and commented on it specifically and said you know we're not above you we're with you so it's always a it's always an interesting dynamic to track at the annual meetings the sort of relationship between civil society groups and the official proceedings um, one thing that I've I've picked up on this year that's interesting is with this um, both the IFC coal policy announcements and also the World Bank's decision not to support the Kosovo plant. Um, it gives you an, a sort of window into how civil society advocacy works because as soon as uh, the World Bank confirmed that they wouldn't support the Kosovo plant, civil society groups were pushing and saying, okay, now that you've confirmed that, the next step is for you to tell us how you're going to move Kosovo to become a 100% renewable energy economy. So it's just sort of, you know, you really see that progression of, of small steps forward whenever they can take them. Mm -hmm. And then going back to um, the sessions today, you just came out of a session related to Bali FinTech. Um, the president of Indonesia was there. What were your key, what are the Bali FinTech principles and what were your key takeaways from this? Yeah, um, so this was a huge event and I think it's it's along with the Human Capital Index, um, it's being presented as, as one of the practical takeaways of these meetings the Bali FinTech agenda. Basically, it's 12 principles that governments should consider um, as they're sort of uh, thinking about how both to incorporate uh, financial technologies uh, that can you know, speed things like banking and uh, provide greater access to, to banking services, um, but doing so in a way that's inclusive, that's putting in, in place smart regulations so the bank and IMF have teamed up to sort of create a list of things that governments should should think about. As you said, the president of, of Indonesia was there and gave opening remarks. And I think this is another instance of, of sort of Indonesia um, making itself present at these meetings. The country is is uh, portraying itself as, as very sort of entrepreneurial friendly. President Widodo himself was an entrepreneur. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about how to sort of reap the benefits of entrepreneurship and technology, um, but to do so in a way that's smartly regulated and not, you know, putting consumers at risk. Any other major takeaways at this point that we should cover? We are going to be continuing to cover the meetings through the weekend. They end officially, I believe, on Sunday. Not for me. The one thing I would add that hasn't happened yet in the agenda, but that we're really keeping tabs on. Um, is anything that we can learn about sort of how geopolitics are shaping these discussions? 
China. China, yes. How how could we not start with China? Well, we didn't get a we didn't get to ask our our question in the press conference today, so that may be why it's not top of mind for you. So what what is the geopolitical moment that we're looking at right now? Because this is a big deal. It is something that people are talking about, but is not being reflected so much in a lot of the official sessions. Yes. So there is a session on Saturday uh, about the economics of the Belt and Road Initiative. And we'll be really interested to see what specific economics they they choose to highlight. Because, um, you know, one of the things that that we've been following at DevEx, and we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago at, at the UN General Assembly, is that there's sort of an emerging um, battle between the United States and China, not on the trade front, although that's obviously happening, but on the development finance front. And so you've got um, sort of two competing models of how to do development finance out there in the world, um, with the United States saying that China's model puts countries at risk of accumulating unsustainable debt, of entering into, you know, expensive infrastructure projects that don't turn out to be commercially viable, and they point to different examples around the world. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how the the World Bank sort of positions itself uh, within that emerging argument, or if they try to sort of keep a, a step back and maintain equally friendly relations with all players involved. Yeah, the World Bank really seems to be kind of walking walking a tightrope right now with this very conversation, but definitely something that we will keep an eye on. Michael, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me. And be sure to keep on top of all of our coverage. You can find it at devx.com. Also, please do follow Sophie and Michael on Twitter and DevX as well. If you go to the DevX handle, you can also find out how to sign up for our special edition DevX at World Bank newsletters to get an inside look at key conversations that are happening every single day. Thank you, and we will see you next week.